my name is Barika Tier Edwards, and I'm a former social entrepreneur, and I'm currently a social impact strategist. Hi, Barika. Thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast. What made you choose this area of work? Uh, what made you choose to become uh, a mentor and an impact uh, strategist? Um, I started out in the performing arts as a performer and a producer, and I worked for many companies, both nonprofit and private sector companies across many verticals and industries. So I had um, a, I was gaining while being a performer, gaining a lot of knowledge of best business practices um, in different types of modes. But when I worked for nonprofits, I saw there was a disconnect when it came to meeting mission objectives and sustainability when meeting the objectives of grants that nonprofits would gain. And oftentimes there wasn't, there was like a slight match or an adjacent match to the mission that the nonprofit was setting out to achieve. But it, often hit the miss the mark slightly because they're more fulfilling the grant objective. So um, I discovered social enterprises and where you have a for-profit mo business model that is mission driven. And from there, I started to dig deeper because I had at the time a nonprofit public radio program called the Artsy Fartsy Show. And I wanted to make that program more sustainable. So I got, decided to dig more deeper into social enterprise business models to see if that would be a solution for it. Um, and the short of it, I became a global social impact fellow out of University of Pennsylvania. And I launched a startup called Oya, which wasn't an art startup. It was a HR tech platform that helped veterans and military spouses connect with the tech sector. My hope was that if we were to address the, um, the discrimination and biases in hiring that veterans would face, my hope is that it would also affect other people, including black and brown people who also face systemic biases when it comes to hiring, especially in high paying tech jobs. And um, what was the vision exactly uh, for the long-term for Oya? Um, the vision for Oya in the long-term was to bridge veterans and military spouses who are often have some interesting constraints. We like to say that we were before our time, even had people who had used our platform um, when we end up shutting down they said, you guys were way before your time. And I was looking for this solution, but then I realized it's no longer here. So it was a solution that we really, that is really needed. Not only that, we were um, connecting active duty service members to opportunities to work for high tech companies as they're getting ready to retire. Um, and that required people to work remotely as well as spouses to work remotely. So in a second way, we are also before our time because um, that was kind of one of our friction points where some companies like Microsoft at the time was moving towards um, fully remote work. 
and others were kind of like, I'm not sure, even though we saw this was the future of work. Um, but then this was, you know, five, four years before the pandemic. Right. So now we are there. And I think that this is a, it's like, it can be the great equalizer when it comes to people who usually face systemic issues, not only in hiring, but also in the workplace, um, being able to work remotely. Um, think about, you know, the military spouse who has to move every two to 1.5 years um, and they're unable to like go into an office at a brick and mortar office because they have to move to make sure that their family is intact um, or a service member or a person or even <clears throat> not a civilian that has a disability that really would thrive better at home. So it's the great equalizer because of this, also because perhaps uh, areas are associated with different incomes and uh, people with uh, lower incomes may be living farther away or uh, is there are there any other reasons perhaps the fact that people are not actually socializing at the water cooler uh, doesn't create as much friction between races is that I mean I, in your I... case it's about um, you're, refer mm -hmm. you're referring to uh, veterans of course the veteran experience yeah but, uh, but what about racial discrimination at work. You know, I've I've I watch a lot of like Xenios um and they're what they're talking about and a lot of them and including people who are in my generation and the generations between and above mine, a lot of people have reflected on the fact that they don't like they have felt like a release of burden because they don't have to deal with the daily microaggressions that they are, that are flinged and flicked at them every day. Mm -hmm. um, as much at home, working at home, than they would experience working in the office. So absolutely evangelos, <laughs> I think that also is true. Um, and I think now we are thinking more about how we can be better communicators and be more efficient and um, I, I, you know, the argument is that business is done at the water cooler. Well, business can also be done where you are able to go meet other people, learn from other people who are not from your company. And there's better opportunities possibly when you are able to network beyond your, your you know, office community and bring business in that way as well, or bring expertise in and bring experience in that way as well. Yeah. How come veterans, um, how come that specific group? What was it that drove you to do that? Yeah, so my co-founders were in the military community. I had family that served and in, in passed um, due to their service in uh, from the military community. I saw veterans as like, you know, we in the United States, we esteem veterans um, and hold them high and rightly so. Mm -hmm. And if they're facing like presumptions about, oh, they're going to have PTSD and go, you know, what is it, postal in my office, it, veterans have PTSD really at lower rates when you look at the civilian population uh, per per capita. And I would often say, 
when people would, uh, employers um, in tech would ask me, well, what about PTSD? I'm like, you probably have five people who have never served Mm-hmm. in combat or served period that have PTSD because PTSD, PTSD right is, is that so interesting from what yeah. I mean where do where does where do people who have not experienced such intense trauma uh, as uh, going through uh, intensity of war and then leaving it uh, yeah yeah well I, I'm not an expert or sociologist or I'm sorry psychologist to be able to answer that but it is it there it is factual that civilians experience PTSD at, at the same rate or higher as uh, veterans and spou- and veterans wow. in active duty. And I and that's true. You know, a lot of people have faced a lot of different traumas in their lives um, okay. that do that results in, you know, having traumatic experience and traumatic triggers that will trigger you to um, to react in a, a way that is not really beneficial to yourself, unfortunately. Um, so, so what was the effect of other things like people would ask about skills and that's one thing that a lot of people often, um, say when they're thinking about black and brown workers is, are they skilled enough? So there's like this assumption that they're not skilled enough to do the work, um, and that happens across within the veteran community, especially veterans of color, um, as well as veterans who are not of color. Like there's this assumption that, oh, they have tremendous skills, but do they have the skills for my you know, desk job or my desk job coding our platform is not as exciting, as, you know? So there's a lot of like, <laughs> There's a lot of myths around right. what it is to work in the military and transition into a civilian job, but it doesn't benefit us as a whole. And then the other thing I, I will never, ever forget, I was at uh, TechCo as one of like their 100 startups of the year. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was pitching, oh yeah. And there was an investor, it was a female investor and she was laid out across the table with her, with her hand on her cheek and just giving me this scowl. And, you know, and that's wow. one thing I would always advise. It's like, find where your positive energy is when you're pitching, because it's hard enough to pitch. But she said, doesn't this, doesn't the government already helped them transition doesn't the government already provide them a job when they leave and uh no (laughs) interesting yeah the level of ignorance right right yes yeah so even there you know um where she was lounging across this you know boardroom table to show physically her you know dissatisfaction with uh what my, our solution was because she believed that the government provides yes the government probably should uh, you know provide solutions to help people transition into the job market help people graduates get really pay, good, good paying jobs as well you know mm-hmm. everybody it should help everybody but it doesn't it simply doesn't so <laughs> so what was the effect of uh oh 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 yeah oh is it oh yeah Oh yeah. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Cause we, oh yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, it's like, you know, people in the Midwest, um, my co-founder and I uh, were both from Wisconsin and, oh yeah, you betcha. And oh yeah, oh okay. yeah. So it's quite, uh, and, I, and I really loved our founder team because we were from three different generations, three different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my co-founder who I loved bits, uh, she has been an incredible inspiration. Um, she 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 inspires me every day and she gives me like the tough love that I need to hear um mm-hmm. that I don't often see in myself as Marie Roker Jones uh she today to this day uh we we talk all the time I just sent her a note in the mail like you know back in the 80s when people used to send like pen pal letters I sent one off to her handwritten uh-huh. and you know, having a co-founder who becomes a friend, like we didn't know each other. She heard my, my she listened to my radio show um, when we first met. And I was like, wow, you listened to my radio show. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then we, became, we have become like the bestest of friends. Um, and she has tremendous belief in myself that I don't even have <laughs> in myself. Um, so having a co-founder that has your back is so important um be, because you're building something that is kind of like oh, oftentimes i felt like i'm delivering a baby or you know dating yeah. <laughs> <just> a baby <laughs> or many and babies. have somebody with you having a partner with you who can you know give you insights and see where your 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 blind sites are and where you're where you're excelling and you know really is to spur each other on it's really important and i right I, unless you're unless you're a partner like me who faints in the delivery room <laughs> <laughs> right exactly exactly um question the uh so what was the effect of uh oh yeah over uh the five years how many years was it that has it been yeah so we had like i think it was like 60 percent of the the veterans that we matched to employment kept their jobs and were able to earn a high wage and that was the key is that we didn't want people to work for jobs that are going to be low wage like dead end low skill jobs we wanted them to be in high wage jobs that you can grow professionally what but these were jobs that and, were matched with uh, with people uh, or yes. people were matched with jobs according to their their pre-existing skills right like I mean, you can't skills, take someone who well doesn't as, yeah but. yeah we also looked at like the cultural fit like how does this company how does this company work for is a culture fit and i think that's one thing that people often try to figure out how to ask when they're interviewing everybody, not just veterans, but you, you wanna be in a company where you can grow and that's going to foster growth and that's not going to overwork you or demand, you know, or I, I'm currently studying like flexible capitalism and labor right now. Um, wow. So I, I've, I've like, a lot of terms are like popping to, into my head about how, you know, tech has, you know, control people through normative control to overwork themselves. And that's uh-huh. like the norm, like you should work 40 hours period without a paid break. 
well, yeah. that's not the norm. And that's not even what our, you know, previous people have fought for and died for. Right. Uh, they've died for your ability to have a good work-life balance um, and safe, safe conditions. And we have really kind of turned away from that. But I did. But it I feels, did. Uh, just, uh, just one moment before you move forward, the, uh, it feels like people actually want to do it, especially younger people right out of college uh want to maybe are dedicated or maybe it's just so ingrained in their system in their dna now uh they, they are workaholics are. and they are maybe panicked about their early career well you know we're i i know people in hong kong and people and you know other parts of the world who have joined the great resignation right and a lot of them are saying we are done with up and we cannot work under these conditions. Right. We've seen people die left and right of us dur during the pandemic and we don't want to have, we don't want to subject ourselves to these working conditions that are really not for our personal benefit. Um, so yeah, as a result, um, I, after Oya closed, um, I wanted to utilize I wanted to continue in social impact, but I wanted to increase my footprint mm -hmm. because I've, I've never been really, you know, focused solely internally, but I'm often very much global minded and I really care about issues that impact the world, mm -hmm. um, not just issues that impact uh, on, on our national level, but more global level. So um that's where I am today, where I want to, you know, help startups who have, and businesses as well, to um, think about incorporating impact and baking that into their business model. And you've taken a step, uh, you went back to school, you went back to Harvard for, for a master's degree. You want to talk about yeah. that a little bit and uh, also how would you connect that to your future career? Yeah, so um, I was looking for a program that would be part-time um, and so, cause I just can't afford to, you know, take, yeah. <laughs> go on, go on a, like a sabbatical and just, you know, right. go to school. I still have to pay for like, oh yeah, bills and things like that. And, uh -huh. um, and, uh, and the fact that there are so many years when you're in as an entrepreneur that you're not making a salary. So there's a lot of like catching up to do. Um, so I found a program that was um, part, part time, which is the program at Harvard Extension School where I am currently at. And it's, it's wonderful. The people, uh, the students there are super, super um, hardworking, super smart. Like my writing partner last semester was a uh, co-founder of WAG, which is the app that you can um, have somebody come to your house and take your dog out for a walk. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, wow, I use this app every day. And so like we had an Oscar award-winning writer, creative writer in our program, um, tremendous, uh, you know, business sense, experienced but everybody's going to school because they they have busy lives they're running companies they're you know experts in their areas they're writing 
Academy Award-winning films. Um, so uh, it was a perfect fit for me. Um, and I love the program. I'm learning a lot. It doesn't have a social impact focus. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of social impact classes offerings, but I knew that. Um, so is it an MBA or something else? It's a master's, a master's in management that I'm working master's. towards. Okay. So, so it's yeah. an MS, right. So it's a, it's a year, year and a half type of program. Well, it depends on how long it takes you to finish. So um, I think the, the like, I think it's like five years. You have to finish it in five years. So oh wow, wow. Okay. so like you're fast- so you're taking one course per semester. That's kind of how. Uh, no, I've been fast tracking due to the pandemic. I've been able to have more, you know, uh-huh. ability to focus by taking classes full time. Okay. <sighs> so yeah. you're gonna be done. <laughs> yeah. I, it's a lot of work. Yeah, I'm yeah. not taking full-time classes this semester, and I think going forward, I'm going to take one class uh, a semester, but um, learning a lot. I love, I love it. Um, and the reason why, um, funny enough, even though I, I don't want to start up again, um, but I noticed that, you know, one of the biggest challenges of being a founder of color and in the social impact space, um, one is that a female founder of color is the percentage that of women who have founded companies that raise funds is like less than 1%. It is like you were take a needle in a haystack and pluck it out. And then you'll find that one, that one female founder of color, black female founder specifically, that will raise money. And I know I was looking at the people who were raising money and they all went to Ivy League school. So that on top of having, you know, the experience of going to an Ivy League school is even more so. So like you take that, yeah. that little, you know, straw that you found or that needle in the haystack, break it in half throw the other half back into the haystack. And that's really who is getting founded is like a half needle in a haystack. Right. Uh, it is, so that's why I decided also I wanted to, I knew I had like gaps and, um, you know, and everybody has this when they're starting a company, there's gaps and how to, you know, leadership gaps, knowledge, knowledge gaps, you know, I wanted to fulfill those gaps and learn new ways and the most cutting edge ways of, of approaching business that were, you know, in this incubator space of academia. And I wanted to learn those things as well so that I could be the best advisor I could be for advising other businesses and startups to build in social impact. Um, I think um, the social impact side, I would love to continue to learn that, but gaining some of the business aspects felt like that's okay. <laughs> it's a good complement of the skills that I've already gained from social impact strategy and then incorporating the business side, um, those gaps there. So, um, sorry about well, that. Well, having done a fellowship in social entrepreneurship, I, uh, I could tell you that it's basically regular business education uh, with a little bit of a few courses on sociology and empathy and addition of tools like SROI, et cetera. So it's not really spectacularly different. Uh, and yeah. the, the case studies differ because they're not for-profit, they're non-profit organizations, et cetera, uh, if you do HBR uh, case study. So uh, that's awesome. So so what's your, 
what's your dream? What's your vision for your career? I guess you're interested in working for uh, for an incubator, an accelerator, uh, or maybe founding your own accelerator. Is that the approach that you want to take? Um, I would love to, upon graduation, uh, work in social impact consulting. Mm -hmm. um, I will continue to mentor founders of color um, and, and female founders of color and not of color. I'm, I'm open to like people who have really progressive, interesting impact solutions um, and continuing mentoring them and helping them to raise. I, I, I would love to help people that look like me, who have struggled like me, who don't have, you know, this perfect path um, trajectory, but like life is squiggly lines on a paper and they've gone through this journey and they bring this tremendous experience to their approach of their solution, I think is incredibly valuable and often yeah. overlooked. Um, and so I do want to help them. And then I, my heart is always, always going to be in my love for the arts and for theater and film. Um, and I would love to, you know, produce more so on the funding side projects, right. uh, film projects and theater projects, especially those where it's, they have diverse cast and diverse um, talent in the background. There so, are people who, uh, there are people who are very kind of, uh, very focused on, on a very specific area of a specific area of a specific sector of uh, tech or whatever it is that they choose to work on. Whereas uh, you, I noticed that you have multiple interests. Like you want to, obviously you are an artist at heart. You are a performer, you mentioned. Um, you did radio, you want to produce, you want to write, who knows? Maybe you, you would want to <laughs> write a script for a movie, but you also want to consult, you want to do, uh, social impact consulting, et cetera. Do you feel that this is a hurdle? That the fact that you are probably plagued by ideas every day and you're not kind of, you're not settled with the field to say that this is what I'm doing. Do you feel it's a problem more than a, than a I think it's of something that's kind of like embedded in my DNA. My, my parents were both artists. They met at a gallery. So Woody Allen. <laughs> Yeah, my mom was exhibiting um, one of my favorite pieces that I grew up in our house. Um, and my dad met her and he's like, come to my car. I have um, some art in my trunk. That was a pickup <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I, my dad was artist, but he, in court, he like meld his art with architecture. He was the second black architect in the uh in in all Wisconsin to oh. be certified as a black architect so he's now you know he passed away last year and now people are starting to write about my dad okay. um but art was always part of it and uh you know the artistic aesthetic and the things that you learn from the arts he applied to architecture and I grew up in the performing arts I I grew up playing the flute and doing theater and getting accepted into a really distinguished conservatory program and then getting getting waitlisted three times for Harvard uh, program for, for theater 
a master's degree in theater, but I, I made it anyways. I'm now not doing theater, but doing business um, at Harvard. So it's kind of interesting there how things come full circle. But I think it's part of my DNA and being creative and thinking creative is how I approach business. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's just a natural part of life. And, you know, my, my dad also had a art gallery um, in Milwaukee. It was called the, the Gallery and the Black Aesthetic. He was, you know, encouraging artists to um, Black folks in, in Wisconsin to become artists. And he nurtured artists and mentored artists, even though he was in architecture and business as an architect. He um, was mentoring artists to start careers. And, you know, one of his dear friends got to exhibit at the Guggenheim in New York City. So there's like this tradition and DNA in our family, including my mom. She was an art teacher and she taught um, students to end up on American Horror Story and have, are now artists by their own right in Wisconsin, top sought artists in Wisconsin. Um, there's like this DNA of mentoring and creating opportunities for others that uh, my dad uh, said that he didn't want to be the only one. He didn't want to be just like on the second in by uh, because of age, the second in in Wisconsin to be an architect. I don't want to be like the one of two. I want to lead a avenue of more people that can you know do what I'm doing who are black and brown. Right. Um, and right. I I, uh, I I didn't really you know realize I've been doing that throughout my whole career, like providing opportunities for other artists through my radio program or other entrepreneurs and how I'm mentoring entrepreneurs. It's like in my DNA. So. Right. So you were, you were entrepreneur in residence at uh, Civic Hall. Can you describe that experience? I love Civic Hall. I love Civic Hall. I, it is, so remember when I was talking about like the benefits of working remotely and how people often talk about the water cooler, that, that experience that doesn't happen, being able to work at Civic Hall and even in my fellowship at um, my global social impact fellowship out of the Center for Social Impact at UPenn, you really get to have those conversations where you really learn what is going on in the world and how people are thinking about solutions. And I've met people who are working on solutions that I've even referenced in the last week or two as like, have you thought about approaching it this way? Or when you're thinking about technology access, have you thought about the fact that they're in this community or in this village, they have issues with broadband access and you're creating a solution that is dependent on broadband access. What, how are you thinking about building the solution when your, your, you know, your beneficiary doesn't have that available to them? And I learned that how people were thinking about problems, how they were researching their market, researching their impacts, really looking at like what are the possible like negative residual effects of the solution um, and 
tackling it. And it was a, a civic hall was all social entrepreneurs, all people in civic tech um, and people that are working on solutions and identifying and, and, and think tanking issues that really profoundly affect everybody, especially when it comes to all things on the internet. Wow. Or wow. run by the internet, or like, wow. you know, <laughs> the engine is the internet. So I love Civic Hall. Um, I absolutely love it. And what's the, uh, now we, we had a conversation earlier on, and I know that you uh, have started, uh, you, you know, you were hired to work somewhere. I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about this experience at all. Yeah. I'm currently consulting for Zane VC and I'm mentoring 22 amazing startups. Um, it's, there are a few social impact startups in that, that in the, our current cohort. Um, and one thing that I'm noticing when it comes to social impact um, startups, and it's something that I really didn't realize I was doing in the beginning. I did realize that, you know, very early on when I was pitching that I needed to cut it out, but I didn't realize that it was kind of like a consistent problem that a lot of founders were dealing with. And that was, how do you balance the storytelling around your impact and balance the storytelling around your business model and how you're going to, you know, be sustainable, which was, you know, my original question, how do I have a mission-driven organization and be sustainable? And that's how I found social and entrepreneurship and social impact business models. So I'm noticing that a lot of founders are incredibly passionate and rightly so about how their solution is going to really transform society for good. That's what we want. We want businesses to be able to do that. But if we are pitching to investors, they wanna hear what is the business model? How is it going to you know, bring returns to their, and to their, to their shareholders and their portfolio um, LPs? And uh, a lot of the startups are starting to realize like it's gotta be only, I, I, I advise, one page, one slide that talks about your solution. Talk about the problem and the solution um, and how it's going to solve that, that impact area like once and then move on to, you know, the traditional, like if you were like a for-profit, um, you know, tech solution that didn't make an impact on society. But you can still weave in, trickle, weave in like, like little drops on this plant, um, how the impact is going to happen based on your market slide, based on your financial slide, you know, but you shouldn't have that the focus. And I'm noticing a lot of the founders will focus 90, 50 to 90% of their pitch towards the problem and the mission and why you should believe in the, the social impact side rather than focusing on the venture side. If you were to come up with a model for a future vehicle for what you're trying to achieve, 
Um, what, I mean, there are thousands of models out there. What would you choose as the ideal model for what you're trying to do in the future? Once you're done with school, once you're done with your, your work at Zane, if you decide to ever leave Zane, of course. Um, have you thought about that? Have you constructed uh, a business model that you feel is ideal for what you're trying to achieve as a professional? Wow. Um, hmm. That's a really great question. I think there are some solutions that are happening that are attempting to do that. Um, that kind of convergence of business minds and creative minds. Um, I remember when I first um, started the fellowship program, I did create a model that was this business mind and creative mind conglomeration to make business sense and, and impact sense. Um, that was then transformed into Oya. Um, and recently I saw, uh, oh, gosh, I draw a blank on her name from, yeah. she created a platform called Maisie or not, not Maisie, Daisy. Her, her name is Maisie. She was Arya in Game of Thrones. And it's kind of like similar. I think there are some solutions that are already out there um, that are kind of com combining like creative minds and, and designers who make solutions. So if I'm the one to create that model, maybe I'm the one to support that model. Perfect. And uh, what's the financing uh, that one would need for that, for that type of approach? What is the, what are the, um, the, how would you structure the financing of, uh, of that approach? You mean like raising a fund or? Uh, yeah, well, like, right. I mean, I what's, what's, your, what's your approach? I own 100% of your company. Make your company sustainable on your own. Um, without funding, especially okay. if you're a black and brown person, because again, it's that half needle in the haystack. Don't, you don't, 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 time is precious. And I know this, you know, time is money, but actually time is money. There's so much, there's opportunity costs there when you are a startup founder. And if you're using all of your time to, and all of your resources and towards you know just trying to raise a fund rather than building your company and building your customers and um you know making your product iterating your product um do that first before trying to raise money some that people, should be some like people start the other way around right like yeah do you feel that uh and some entrepreneurs uh, uh seek uh, funding way too early yeah, I do believe that a lot of people have kind of fallen under this idea that, and it does happen. It does happen. And it's kind of funny, like the exceptions where people raise money um, without having a product or without having any, you know, traction, it does happen. But again, those are also half needles in a haystack, but we kind of elevate them as like, they are the big obvious straw in that haystack right. that you want to pick out you know i remember um my co-founder and i were we were talking about our strategy for raising and this white girl came in and she's like 
I got my team together and we're already talking with this investor who's going to raise it with us. I'm like, so where's your platform? Where's your traction? She had no platform. She had no traction. She did raise. Um, I was like, that's the reality for black and brown founders. And we cannot, we have to, we have, we, we, I always tell the founders, we are like kind of raised in this crucible of excellence. Everything you do in life has to be excellent because we have so many systemic barriers. So we're always taught, you know, you have to be good. You have to exceed, you have, you know, and, and there's a little bit of, you know, unhealthiness with that too. But um, where you're always having to 110 everybody else, right? not sustainable right. <laughs> um, in the long well, run. But you're, you're raised in this thing. Do that work. Don't look at that, you know, that one person who doesn't have the same requirements of society doesn't require them to be in that excellent 110 space all the time. And really utilize that to build your company and 100% own your company. Right. Um, I'm glad that you spoke about this need of uh, this necessity for black and brown people uh, to uh, to outdo everyone else in order for them to be successful. But uh, it is. Uh, I recently read a book by Joyce Roche, Roche, uh, who was the former CEO of uh, Girls Inc. Uh, about her experience with imposter syndrome. And mm. uh, she actually described exactly what you mentioned as a symptom of uh, the most important sim- symptom of uh, imposter syndrome, especially for women and women of color. Well, especially in her generation, because she went to Columbia Business School in the 60s, I believe, late 60s. And um, I was I was just curious what you describe based on on that is essentially the way that she sees it I think is uh, it's almost unhealthy like it's almost like uh, shows insecurity like the way that she describes it in her book uh, the Empress has no clothes which is a discussion about uh, imposter syndrome do you feel mm-hmm. that do you feel that the way that you see things about the fact that yeah, we as black people we have to outdo uh, the rest in order to make up for the gap, the racial gap that there is in entrepreneurship. Do you feel that's a, actually a reality, or is it just something that is perceived by by people of color? It is definitely the reality. Um, definitely not a perception where you are always looked at as somebody who is less. And I don't think it's just, I don't think it's a special case towards the entrepreneurial, you know, world. It's also in the career world. Um, Two points about that. Uh, Last semester, I read a case study about Carla Ann Harris of Morgan Stanley and she, and reading the case study, I was like reading my life and how like her family was saying, you have to go above. You cannot get A minuses, you have to get A's. Mm -hmm. And um, how she grew up with that kind of, you know, you, there is is no way you can, you know, kind of coast through life because they're going to cut you down and you need to be prepared 
to go above and beyond. And then later in the case study, you know, cause it's a lot about like meritocracy. Mm-hmm. He discusses like, even though she does A pluses, she's expecting that the A pluses will at least yield those results that the B minus people were experiencing, were getting and gaining. And um, I learned so much from this case study because then she said, you have to take your career in your own hands. And that's how she did it at Morgan Stanley. And then also um, a few weeks ago, we had um, a guest speaker who talked about the fact that you have um, an investor who, who says, let's invest in this company. And this company is founded by a bro tech guy and he loses money. But if, in comparison, when they look at the same, a black founder who also loses the same amount of money that is in their portfolio, that person has the risk of losing their job because it's going to be looked more at, they're not, they're gonna ignore the other guy the white guy that lost the same amount of money and they're going to focus on the fact that this guy that this black guy that they took risk on that they end up losing money that's the one that's going to rise to the top to their attention and that person has that risk of losing their job for saying let's fund this this venture so that's like the truth of it and why why it's like you are risky because of your skin color, even if you perform at the same level as other people, you have to go above and beyond for you to be considered because there is just that, that stigma is placed on you. So it's not, it's not um, contrived or, you know, thought that this is something that we have to do. It is the reality of what you have to do. And I, I've seen that, like I, I've seen that in my own professional life. I went above and beyond and <laughs> for my, when I was in radio and I got, I didn't get a promotion that it was, people were telling me that you were going to get for years because they wanted to hire somebody who was a white Jewish person. Literally was told, we're gonna hire this person who's a white Jewish person. Um, That's interesting. And, that's the reality of it. So. so if we were to describe, to break down, to deconstruct, I guess, um, gender and racial gap in uh, entrepreneurship, uh, how, what, what would the list be of uh, the, the different elements that construct that, uh, that gap, that are responsible um, for that gap? Sorry, one more time? Yeah, if we were to deconstruct the reasons uh, or the, you know, the whole problem of uh, gender and uh, racial, gap is that how we call it right in entrepreneurship mm-hmm. um what would be the different elements that uh, that construct that uh, gap that are responsible for that gap we just covered uh, one which is the fact that people have a preconception um are there any other hurdles in the way of uh, black women uh, people and, and women etc wow that's a big question um and it has to do with a lot of introspection and self-reflection and the data is out. The data about like $4 million, or I think it's 4 million or $4 billion are left on the table because they do not fund black 
founders because that's the revenue that they are bringing in for their companies they that uh, black and brown founders are bringing in it's a huge number of successful companies um that are never able to raise right and but is there is there a um, is part of the gap sorry is part of the problem i'm going to go back to what i mentioned before um, are there any enlightened people in the entrepreneurship world who do not see color and they don't see them, uh, they don't see gender? And if they are, if there are, is there a danger that uh, the hurdles that we just spoke about may be self-imposed hurdles and there may be uh, a perception in the minds of black people and women? So that, I think yeah, yeah. yeah, so actually, I would say, it's actually $4 trillion, Four, over $4 trillion are left on the table from that founders of color generate revenue wise for their businesses and they're not being funded. So that means that investors are self-imposing on themselves to be blind to the fact that black founders have a $4 trillion investment opportunity um, I think that's what's really self-imposed is that you have you have to have internal ins have to have internal curiosity, introspection, and um, desire to learn and combat these systemic structures that you've been raised in to be able to see the four trillion dollar opportunity that that investors leave on the table. And some investors are going to find, they're going to see it because they've gone through that internal introspection and, and, and also have the curiosity to learn about how, how black people have been systemically left out of all areas of life when it comes to American culture, American society. And they are able to now see these opportunities. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Um, my question was different, um, but we can we can move on again, I guess. Uh, but just to clarify, my question was: uh, Are there any self-imposed hurdles uh, on the side of uh, of the the people who are out there to get a job to be involved with? Uh, with entrepreneurship, uh, black and entrepreneurs oh. and, and women, because of the fact that there has been so much, uh, uh, you know, uh, because of the fact that there is a gap out there, so that there, uh, yeah, even in the so. even in cases where there is no where where the where the hire is enlightened and there is no such thing, even in those cases, there is a self-imposed doubt, which makes uh, black women. Uh, especially doubt themselves tremendously and maybe not get a job because they come across as too timid or something like that. I'm not sure. You'll tell me. So I think though, like the loveliness of in the crucible of black excellence and this requirement of black excellence is that when you have like when you're nurtured, nurtured in this this crucible, you you can experience, everybody experiences imposter syndrome, but I don't think that it is to that effect where 
you know, they're going to experience the imposter syndrome and feel like they cannot become a founder. Uh, on the contrary, I think it's like they, and, and, you know, research shows that there is a point, like kind of like this tipping point where you are so fed up <laughs> by the things that you see around you that you feel like you have no choice but to create a company that's going to address these issues within your community and within society that you want to solve and you are ready to put everything on the line to make that happen because that crucible of you know having to be excellent also shows that you have like you are the one to create the solution. And if you don't create it, then just the next person, the next generation is going to have to, you know, suffer even more. So like, I think it's actually the opposite uh, where more are joining. And as long as they don't fall into like kind of this, you know, veneer and sparkle of venture capital as the means to creating successful business, they will be successful and they are successful. That's where that $4 trillion money number comes from. Um, and that also shows that, you know, companies, even small businesses, um, that are run by black and brown people often have a community component where they're helping the community. So there's like this great, tremendous and beautiful dedication to community that happens um, that we need to have. And, you know, we, I think the more people recognize that and hopefully adopt that, the better society will be. Right. So Marika, where do you see yourself in 20 years and what is your own image of yourself right now in your career? <laughs> in 20 years, oh my gosh, I've been taking it day by day and year by year, um, <laughs> 20 years from now. Um, Everybody laughs at that question, everybody. <laughs> I, you know, when I was in my, my 20s, I was like, by this day, I'm gonna be this, and this day I'm gonna be that, but I haven't really, I made the mistake of asking the I question never, to, a, to, a, to a 70 year old man. He said, he said, probably dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of like in that point in life where I'm like, I am ready to start a family and I'm ready to, you know, pass the torch to the next person. Um, hopefully I'm funding an Academy Award winning film and my my like secret dream you'll love this evangelist um my mm -hmm. secret dream is to produce um a global production fest theater festival in greece where oh, wow. i'm trying pe people from all over the world artists and designers from all over the world to tell their different different fables and mythology stories um and do it in greece where i i adore greek mythology and the Whoa. story so yeah that's we, like we better get started working on that one yeah right? after we're done here <laughs> yes, yes, yes. i have the island picked out for this like theater which festival one? it's called gaia which is like yeah. i think it's perfect for it yeah. though I, I i have it on like i think my facebook 
thing for like the last 10, 15 years. Um, <laughs> and there was a moment where Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie were looking at buying the island. I'm like, no, oh, that's my no, island. No, that's mine, man. <laughs> I, got a, I better become a billionaire quickly. <laughs> my theater festival. I don't think you need to be a billionaire to do it, actually. It's yeah, definitely possible. Property values are going a little higher. You, know, you, better, you better rush. But, yeah, uh, but you could rent it. You could rent it. Yeah, the uh, property value of from the Angelina Jolie. From Angelina, and maybe she could participate. No. Um, <laughs> terrific! This is amazing. Uh, and um, you said you you wanted to start a family, so I'm um, assuming you envision having children. If you have girls, uh, what is the message that you would want to pass on to them? Uh, how would you want to raise them? So they live up to their own uh, higher expectations. Because um, I found that previous generation, growing up in Greece, um, some women of previous generations kind of gave up on, on dreams, et cetera. Uh, women of, of specific cultures tend to do that sometimes, unfortunately, more than men. And uh, it's a concern that I've always had how do I raise my girls to make sure that they establish, uh, you know, high goals and go after them and not compromise them? Mm. My mom and dad said you could do anything you put your mind to do, which you know, I know is part of like the American dream, American, you know, mythos of how we, how we are. But I would also say there is really don't allow yourself or the thing that I was taught is that never say no, yeah. like, or I quit. Granted, that's, you know, there's some boundaries that you, when you should quit, you definitely should quit. I'm, it took me a long time to learn that. And I think that also happened with Carla Ann Harris at Morgan Stanley, like, knowing when to put your foot down if it's not going to move your career forward but i would also like kind of you know pass down that same thing like if you want to play carnegie hall you'll play carnegie hall mm -hmm. practice 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 Sorry. and eventually you'll get to play carnegie hall i got to play carnegie hall right. you know so um there is always a means and a ways of getting to what you want. Um, and you have to be very creative and innovative. If you can do that, think creatively and innovatively to get to that impossible, then you can do it.